Please do keep your Bibles open there on page 334 as we start this new sermon series today in the book of 1 Kings, and we'll be focusing on chapters 1 to 11. And I want to begin by just asking, why are we spending uh, seven weeks looking at this ancient text with all these strange names and peculiar places, and it's all happening around 970 to 930 BC? How can this possibly have any relevance for us today in 21st century London. Well, whenever we come to a book of the Old Testament, it's always helpful to have a few New Testament controls in mind. One of them, what I want to share with you now, is 2 Timothy 3.15, where the Apostle Paul is training his protege, Timothy, and he says this about the Scriptures, how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, and he's writing this, he's referring to the Old Testament Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, this tells us three things. First of all, the Christian claim is that this book, 1 Kings, and actually all of the Old Testament Scriptures, they they are not no ordinary books, but these contain the very words of God breathed out to us and speaking to us today. That 1 Kings is God's self-revelation to us. The God is unchanging. So the God who we learn here about in 1 Kings is the same God who is alive and active in the world today. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Secondly, this book of 1 Kings, 2 Timothy tells us, can strengthen and nurture our faith in Jesus Christ. And let's be absolutely clear that Christ is not Jesus' surname, right? It is his title, the Messiah, God's long-promised king. But what does it mean for Jesus to be king today? What's it mean for anyone to live under the rule of Jesus as king? Out of all the books of the Bible, one kings, as the name suggests, is really helpful for showing us that. As we are going to see what's often called the golden era or the golden age in the life of Israel in these opening 11 chapters and the joy and wonder of God's people as they flourish under God's rule in God's land. We're going to see what a joy and wonder it is to live under the rule of Jesus today and the terrible consequences of not doing so. Thirdly, the book of 1 Kings, 2 Timothy tells us, is able to make us wise for salvation. Because even though we will see Solomon become one of the most famous kings as all of history, wise, wealthy, prosperous, we will also see by the end of this series his catastrophic and sudden demise. We will see the fallenness of all human leadership, the fallenness in every human heart, and the absolute impossibility of this world ever being saved by human power or politics. We need a savior. We need a greater Solomon. We need a perfect king who can deal with sin and bring in the sort of future we all long for. So that's why we're spending seven weeks in one kings. And that is why I think this book is very relevant for us today not least in light of the post office IT scandal in this country just a month ago and the deep flaws that were exposed there in senior management. False accusations 
the miscarriage of justice, people not being listened to, and lives completely ruined. I mean, no wonder there is such a distrust in this country at the moment towards many institutions, including the church, whenever there is a failure of leadership. But 1 Kings is going to show us a better way. 1 Kings is going to give us hope. 1 Kings is hopefully going to move our hearts to pray afresh those wonderful words in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, in our lives, in this church, across the city of London. Okay, so that's where we're going. Come with me now to 1 Kings on page 334. Love for you to have it open in the church Bibles on your phone, just an unfamiliar part of the um, Bible. So let's look at this together. The main thing for us to see in this opening chapter is that God's promised one will be king. God's promised one will be king. Now, this opening chapter is a long one. Lots going on, lots of repetition, uh, repetition, lots of unfamiliar names and places, and lots of assumed Bible knowledge as we jump in here a third of the way through the Old Testament. So let me give you a quick overview of sort of the main movements of the chapter, and then we can dive in a little deeper. The book begins in verses 1 to 4 with King David, which if you're new to the Bible, new to the Christian faith, one of the key central characters of the Old Testament. But here we find him um, old and cold and frail and feeble and unable to care for himself. So this is a far cry from David's heyday, you know, defeating Goliath, establishing God's kingdom in Jerusalem. Instead, we read of this appalling treatment of Abishag to lie beside him and keep him warm with all the sexual overtones that that would have involved. And we're told that the king had no sexual relations with her. Good, he shouldn't. But we're probably deliberately being told this to remind us of how it all went wrong for David in terms of his wicked treatment of Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah and all the devastating consequences that flowed from it. So here is David at the end of his life. And the question is, who will be king next? In verses 5 to 10, Adonijah, who is David's fourth son and oldest surviving son, he sees an opportunity to take the throne, right? I will be king, he says. But then in verses 11 to 27, Nathan the prophet and Bathsheba, so one of David's wives and the mother of Solomon, they go to King David and they say, look, what's going on with Adonijah becoming king? Because you promised that Solomon would be king just as the Lord promised to you. This then stirs King David into action in verses 28 to 40 as he appoints Solomon as the rightful king and gets Zadok the priest to anoint him with oil, sound the trumpet, long live King Solomon. And then in the final scene, verses 41 to 53, it turns back to Adonijah who receives news of Solomon being made king, realizes his folly, runs the temple, clings to the horns of the temple for mercy and Solomon shows him mercy and tells him to go home. So that's a quick overview of chapter one. And the crisis is averted, and the pretender to the throne is humbled, and God's chosen one, Solomon, becomes king just as the Lord promised earlier in 2 Samuel 7, and specifically promised it to be Solomon, we are told in 1 Chronicles 22. Do feel free to grab me later if you want any of these Bible references. But here is a question for you. Did you notice anything odd in this opening chapter about the way in which God works out his promise to end up with Solomon as king? Given what we just said before about scripture being breathed out by God, this is God's self-revelation to us. This is God revealing himself to us so we know how he works in the world today. 
Did you notice anything odd? Who is missing here in the opening chapter? God is missing. God does not speak in this opening chapter. God does not directly intervene in this. Some people talk about him. He's not actively at work, so it seems. Because by the end of the chapter, God's promised one, Solomon, is king. Despite all the messiness of the end of David's life, despite this power grab by Adonijah and all the uncertainty that would come with it, God's promised one is king. And I hope this comes as a great reassurance to us if we are followers of Jesus Christ today. Amidst all the messiness in the world, the uncertainty, the power grabs we see all around us in life, our workplace, and we may think to ourselves, you know, who is really in charge and how is it all going to play out? It can feel very destabilizing at times. We live in a time of great global uncertainty, the mess in the Middle East, the mess in Ukraine, the protests in London, the polarization of US politics, the ecological crisis. Easy for us to think that the world is just spiraling completely out of control. The mess in the Church of England right now, failed leadership, a lack of accountability, people not being listened to, so much confusion and division as a result, easy to wonder who's really in charge. Is there any way back from here? Perhaps it's a personal crisis you are facing right now. We said at the prayer gathering on Wednesday how many in the church family are suffering right now, either with long-term illnesses, sudden unexpected diagnosis of serious health issues, and just the uncertainty that comes with that. And 1 Kings chapter 1 reassures us that no matter what we are facing now, whether globally or personally, the uncertainty, the mess, nothing, absolutely nothing is outside God's control. And he is at work through it all and despite it all to make sure his purposes come to fruition for human history. God's promised one will be king. It was true for King David, it was true for King Solomon, and it was true for the ultimate king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, and his perfect kingdom will come. So don't despair, don't give up, no matter how uncertain and messy things feel for you right now. Be reassured, Jesus is king, his kingdom will come on earth as in heaven. Well, if that's the first thing to see, God's promised one will be king. The second thing to see is don't try to be king. That's the lesson we learn from Adonijah in verses 5 to 10 and 41 to 53. I wonder what you make of Adonijah as we're introduced to him here in verses 5 to 10, because isn't this the sort of self-confident, self-assured, charismatic, visionary leader that so often the business world and often the church now looks for in a leader? Just look at him, verse 5. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. Remember when I was a graduate, 
for a new graduate for Deutsche Bank, and the head of global markets took the British graduates to one side and shared with us how he felt that we were too reticent and too reserved, and we needed to be more self-assured and put ourselves forward more, and that's how we'd get on more in the banking world and we'd rise up faster. Adonijah would have made a great banker. He's got all these qualities. Verse 7, Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Zeruah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they gave him their support. Adonijah, he is very smart. He knows how to work the room, how to network, how to play the political game. He gets the military leader, Joab. That's David's powerful military commander on side. And then he gets the religious leader, Abiathar, the priest, on side too. So two of the most powerful, influential people in the land. He's got him on side. Who can stop him now? Verse 9. Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fattened calves at the stone of Zoheleth near Enrugal. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaniah or the special guard or his brother Solomon. He is shrewd as well. He knows how to wine and dine his supporters, his influencers. He knows how to identify and isolate the opposition, presumably to deal with them later on. So what do you make of Adonijah? Are you impressed by him? Do you want to be like him? Confident, assured, ambitious, know what you want, go-getter, charismatic? We need to be very careful here. In verse 5, that phrase, put himself forward, literally translates from the Hebrew original, exalted himself. And in the Bible, from start to finish, whenever people exalt themselves, they end up humbled. We skipped over verse 6 before, but just look at this little editor's note in brackets. His father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? So much we could say here about the importance of parental discipline, not just letting our children do what they want, and actually how loving it is to set boundaries, to test heart motives, not just whatever your heart's desire is. He was also a very handsome man. Appearances can be deceiving. And he was born next after Absalom. So he's literally entitled. And I find it so striking when you actually get to the New Testament and you see out of the 15 qualities of a church leader in 1 Timothy 3, did you know that 14 of them are around the person's character and their inner disposition and the motives of the heart? Only one of the qualities is about giftedness, ability to teach. And yet, how often is it when we look at church leaders, we're actually often looking at the giftings, the externals, the abilities, the charismas, how they look, how they come across. Are they one of us? Perhaps most damning of all in these verses is the fact that there is no mention of God at all. When David makes Solomon king later on, in verses 36 to 37, we read of Beniah, son of Jehoda, praying and clothing the whole ceremony in prayer. But here with Adonijah, it's all human power, human plotting, selfish ambition, and using dubious means and methods 
to get what he wants. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to resist this at all costs. So let me ask, where might you be seeking to grasp power and influence for yourself right now? Where might you be seeking the approval of powerful people rather than the approval of God? In what areas of your life are you still trying to be king? I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and Jesus is king and you know, all these other areas of my life, but when it comes to my finances, I will be king. When it comes to my relationships, when it comes to my sex life, I will be king. Please can all of us, I include myself in this, learn the lesson of Adonijah. Because there is an Adonijah in each and every one of us. And where you see it, confess it, repent of it. That grasping for power, that exalting yourself, you're trying to be king, the power plays, the manipulation, the passive aggressiveness. Do you see in it in your life right now? Confess it to the Lord right now. We need to repent. In verses 41 to 53, Adonijah recognizes his mistake. He humbles himself before Solomon, cries out for mercy, and Solomon does give him mercy, but he gives him this condition, doesn't he, at the end, that if he's worthy, that would be fine, and if he shows himself to be evil, it won't be, and we'll see how that plays out next chapter. But wonderfully, with the Lord Jesus Christ, when we confess our sin to him, there is no conditions attached. None at all. Because Jesus Christ has paid for our sin once for all upon the cross. All the judgment for our sin, past, present, future, has fallen on him. So if we confess our sin, we are fully, completely forgiven and accepted by God. So don't hold back. Run to him now, confess your sin, know his forgiveness. For all those times, we try to be king. Well, God's promised one will be king, so don't try to be king. Instead, trust in the promises about his king. This is the third and final lesson from this opening chapter of 1 Kings because it's just amazing how God works this promise out to make Solomon king through his faithful servants, Nathan, Bathsheba, and David as they live in light of the promises about Solomon. In other words, God's sovereignty, his control of all things, it does not exclude human responsibility and our duty to act and to step out in faith. Which, by the way, I find absolutely extraordinary that God would use weak, frail, fallible, sinful people like you and me to bring his purposes for human history about. It's absolutely astounding. And that's exactly what we see here in these verses. First of all, with Nathan, the prophet, in verse 13, who knows all about God's promise to make Solomon king. Either he's been told directly from the Lord or David had told him. And it is his belief and trust in this promise that motivates him and drives him forward to speak to Bathsheba and say, look, go to David and say what's happened about Adonijah and what are you going to do about it? Similarly with Bathsheba, 
who in verse 17 also knows about the Lord's promise to David about Solomon to be king next. And it is her trust in that promise that enables her to go boldly to the king and say, look, what's going on? And then even for David himself, who we said at the start is old and he's weak and he's frail, and up to this point in the chapter has only managed to utter a few words, what to you, in verse 16. As soon as he hears what's going on, it's like he leaps into action. Because of the Lord's promises, he gives eight clear and direct commands in verses 28 to 35. Call in Bathsheba, call Zadok the priest. Take your servants with you, anoint Solomon, blow the trumpet, shout long live King Solomon, go up with him, seat him on my throne. Decisive action based on the promises of God. So just imagine for a moment the bold, adventurous, risk-taking, decisive steps we might take For Jesus Christ, in the week ahead, the more and more we trust in God's promises about him. Let me throw out a few examples. The promise of full forgiveness when we confess our sin to him. Total acceptance by God. The more we believe this, the more open and honest we will be about our sin with the Lord. We will hold nothing back. The more we grasp that promise, the promise of being clothed in Christ's righteousness, all our shame covered, nothing to hide from God or one another. The more we trust this promise, the more open and vulnerable we will be with each other and our struggles as a church family. The promise of Jesus Christ always being with us on mission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Never leave us or forsake us. Give us the words to say, his word never returning empty. I mean, what boldness these promises can give us to share our faith with our friends and colleagues. We all find it difficult. We all find it tough, but these are the promises that God gives us to cling to, to help us. The promise in Philippians 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether as friend or foe. So we don't need to worry about all the global uncertainty around us today. As Christians, we know where the future is heading. And the more we cling to this promise, the more peace and confidence we can have in our hearts and lives today. The promise in Ephesians 6 that those who work for the Lord and not people please their boss will receive a reward from him. Just think how this promise can help us to step out in faith and do the right thing in our workplaces day by day, week by week, no matter the personal consequences for us. And those are just a few examples, but do you see how trusting the promises of God about Jesus can lead to a bolder, more confident, risk-taking faith in him. So where might the Lord be calling you to trust in his promises about Jesus today? Where does he want you to step out in faith the week ahead? Where does he want you to take risks for him? How might he use you to further his purposes in the world today? 
because this is what 1 Kings chapter 1 is about. God's promised one will be king, so don't try to be king. Instead, trust in the promises about the king. King Jesus and his kingdom will come. Let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank and praise you for this opening chapter in 1 Kings. We're excited to hear all that you have for us in these opening 11 chapters. Thank you that your word is God-breathed. Thank you that you are speaking to us by your spirit through these words written thousands of years ago. You reveal yourself to us that God is faithful to his promises. If you promise something is going to happen, it does happen. For David, for Solomon, for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is alive and reigning and coming back for us. So please, Father, by your spirit, help us not to try and be king. Please give us repentant hearts that don't exalt ourselves. And please help us instead to trust in a deeper way, day by day, all of your promises about Jesus Christ. And we ask it for his name's sake. Amen.